Good morning, brothers and sisters. If you would, please turn in your Bibles with me to the letter to Jude, from Jude. It's on page 1027 of your pew Bibles. We're going to be looking at the entire uh, epistle today. We're going to be focused on verses 17 to 25, but the epistle pretty much needs to be taken all as one big chunk, so it would help you out if you had your Bibles open today, because we're going to be bouncing around a lot throughout it. This is the letter to Jude. We're reading the entire thing, beginning in verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds in which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken about against him. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. And this is our text for today. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, 
worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Dear Lord our God, this epistle is rich. It's rich with exhortation. It's rich with blessings. It's rich with warnings. We ask that you would fill our hearts today, Father, with your spirit, that you would make us receptive to this word, that you would be glorified in its reading and its teaching, that the people would hear this message today and that they would be warned on how they are to contend for their faith. This is our faith, Father. This is the faith that you've given us. This is the faith that you've handed down to us. And it's a faith that only comes through belief in your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. By his death, burial, and resurrection, and the new life that is given to us through faith in him. Please let us hear and believe that word today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I would start with a question. What is the greatest threat to the church? If you had to take a second to think about that, what would you assume would be the greatest threat to the church here and now as you sit in these pews? There's a lot of different answers you could probably come up with. They would all be accurate to one degree or another from a certain perspective. You could say, well, nothing is a threat to the church. As it says in Romans, nor life, nor death, nor Height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities will separate us from the love of God, and you would be correct. At the other turn, we know that the entire world is at enmity with the church. The entire world hates the church because the entire world hates God. In the book of James, it tells us that to, to be friends with the world is to make enmity with God ourselves. So what is the greatest threat? Well, you might be interested to posit that question, but when I started looking into it, it's amazing how often the same preachers were saying the same exact things. Read just a few quotes from you, and I'm paraphrasing most of these, but Sinclair Ferguson said that Christendom is a far greater threat to Christianity. Where it has the gospel in its hands, destroying it, the church is the greatest threat to real Christianity in the world. Paul Washer, when asked what's the greatest threat to the church, he said pastors. The leader roles that he considered to be evangelists, pastor, and teachers who are either um, weak or unbiblical or unconverted. John MacArthur said there is no threat to the church. The government is not a threat to the church. The only threats to the church are internal. They're not external. Saying something similar, finally, Robert Gottfried said, all of these threats are internal threats, not external threats. It's not really the world we have to fear, it's ourselves. 
So when we read this epistle from Jude, he's saying pretty much the same thing. He's saying we have to warn ourselves, be warned that false teachers are creeping into the church. That there's internal threats, there's things that are going to threaten the unity and the gospel of Jesus Christ from within the body of Christ. And his answer to that is that we have to contend for our faith. Along the same lines, I would say that the greatest threat to the church is that when I look at the church, I don't see us contending for our faith. We sit in these pews and we have this entire world that's against us, that's teaching us that homosexuality is a good thing, that abortion should be legal, and that we should wonder that, that, that certain things like gender identity aren't the cut and dry left and right issues that we want to believe that they are because that's what the Bible says they are, that everything's fluid. Truth is this. It's not left and right. It's not up and down. It's not yes or no. It's this mass of, and this, this realm of truth. It's not what the Bible says. So what does it mean to contend for the faith? What does Jude tell us about contending for the faith? Well, that's where we're going. That's what the Bible tells us about contending for the faith. We remember what the Word of God says. We pray in the Holy Spirit. We keep ourselves in the love of God, and we have mercy on others. So I would encourage all of you sitting here today that this is something you can apply almost immediately. If you are members of this church, take to heart what I'm about to tell you because you can put this to Apple. You can start applying this as you're sitting in these pews throughout this, throughout this sermon here and now. As you listen to me preach. If you're not a member but merely a believer, I hope you'll be warned about why we take things like membership and the gospel so seriously. And if you're not a believer, then I hope that you too would be encouraged to know that there's hope for you too if you're willing to humble yourselves and put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. So before we get to the meat of what we were going to preach on, I want to build up the context for this epistle. Because like I said, it's all one epistle. Jude spends three-fifths of this epistle just making his case for what we read up there. He goes through this entire history lesson. But a number of you might be asking, well, who is Jude in the first place? So let's start there. In verse 1, it says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So two things we want to note. First, his name was Judas. It's actually what it says in the, in the Greek. It's Judas. It's the same name as, as Judas Iscariot and, and everyone else named Judas in the Bible. It's the same name. Just an English translation of that name because I think they felt they didn't want somebody named Judas writing a portion of the Bible. They felt weird that people might wonder if this was Judas Iscariot. It's not. It's not. We actually believe because he identifies himself with James that he's actually the half-brother of Jesus Christ. He's the only person named in the Bible that would have had notoriety among the Christians of that day who had a brother named Judas was James and Jesus, as it tells us in Mark chapter 6. So we believe this man to be the half-brother of Jesus. Second of all, that word bondservant. That word bondservant is the Greek word doulos, and it means slave. He's saying, I am a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That's significant. That's significant whenever an apostle or a man of God says that. But here in this particular book, I think we'll see that it has particular significance. That this man is sold out for Jesus Christ. He is always under the absolute authority of Jesus Christ as his Lord and his Savior. Next, we look at the audience. Again in verse 1, where he says, To those who are the called... Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Almost has a, a Trinitarian exhortation to us. He's, those that are called, we're, we're called by the Spirit. We're transformed. We're circumcised by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We're beloved in the Father. We are called His children, His beloved children. And then we are kept by the Son Jesus Christ. We are His possession. We're bought with a price. So these are Trinitarian Christians, those who are called and beloved and kept. This is for you. Yes, this absolutely was applicable in the first century when Jude wrote this, but he's not writing this to a specific church. He says, I'm writing this to all of the called and the beloved and the kept. If you are a Christian, if you're putting your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, this epistle is for you as well. In verse 3, he writes, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. He's saying that my intent was to write about the gospel. I intended to write this message to you. I, I wanted to exhort you. I wanted to rejoice along with you, knowing that we are all saved by the same Master, by the same Lord Jesus Christ who came and suffered once for all for the saints that those that put their faith in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's what I wanted to write to you about. But I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Despite his best intentions, his necessity was that he warn the church against danger. says, I'm going to appeal to you. I'm going to try to convince you that you need to contend earnestly, not modestly, but earnestly. This needs to be a fire lit underneath you that, that drives you to make this every effort to contend for the faith. And it's also notable that he calls it the faith. This isn't a personal faith. It's not your personal saving faith of salvation. He's saying this is the gospel message that has been handed down from the prophets to the apostles, down to every believer. This is the true gospel message. This is the faith that we've been handed. This is the faith that's been entrusted to us. This is the message that we continue to preach. It's a message that's true. It's a message message that saves people. We have to contend for it. And then beginning in verse 4, he starts to give his reasons for that. He says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Saying that these men are apostates. They're false teachers. These aren't men that need to be pulled back into the truth. He's saying these men are already condemned. 
And he's saying that they have crept in unnoticed. Where have they crept in? They've crept into the church. This isn't a church that has open doors that just lets anybody be a member of a church. He's saying that these men have been allowed into the church to eat with them, to drink with them, to covenant with them, to pray with them. He's saying that they are they're hidden reefs in their love feast. They were eating and dining with these people. They were listening to what they had to say. They were being influenced by these people. Second Peter, which is a passage in Scripture that very closely follows along this. There's some debate on whether or not Jude was influenced by Peter or whether or not Peter was influenced by Jude. But he says the same thing in Second Peter 2 where he says that they came in secretly. Completely unaware. The church was completely unaware that these men were even there. They are condemned. They are not part of the body. They are not saved. They have their own intents. They have their own wicked, evil purposes in being in that church. Primarily, it says at the end of verse 4, that they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And as I said, the word... The word doulos, that word slave, is very significant. This is one of the only places in the Bible, actually this is the only place in the Bible where it uses that, that, uh, that phrase where it calls them despoten kaikurion, our master and lord. Our lord is always associated with the deity of Christ, but that word despoten, master, is usually associated with somebody that owns slaves. We are owned by Jesus Christ. We are his possession. He has absolute control and the rights over us. As I said, he bought us with a price. But these men, they deny him as their master. They don't believe he has any rule over them. They deny him as master. They deny him as Lord. These are natural men, as it says in verse 19, where it says that these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the spirit. That word worldly-minded, uh, it actually has a, means physical or natural. Led some people to believe that this might be some kind of form of heresy where, he was, where Jude was preaching against some kind of early proto-Gnosticism, where people believe that anything spirit was good and anything natural or physical was evil. But that doesn't seem to be the case here. It seems like he's preaching against these men in a very specific way. If I turn really quickly to Romans 16. It says in Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. And turn away from them, for such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Just a couple pages ahead in 1 Corinthians 2, we read in verse 12, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God which things we also speak not in words taught in human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. He's saying that by 
the spirit which resides within us gives us a special understanding of the scriptures. It gives us a special transformative power to be saved by the words of God. These men deny those things. They don't have the spiritual capacity to understand these things. They don't have the spiritual capacity to believe these things. And therefore, by their default position, they have to deny them. They have to be against them, regardless of what they say, regardless of what they imply through their being here or their attitudes. They are 100% aligned against the things of God. And that's what this history lesson that Jude gives us is. Keep in mind all of the different people that he brings up in this history lesson between verses uh, 5 and, what, 16? He calls them, he associates them as like faithful, faithless cowards in verse 5. Angels who abandon their post in verse 6. The sexually immoral, he aligns them with in verse 7. He calls them, he directly charges them with rejecting authority in verse 8. He aligns them with the shame of Cain in verse 11. Remember where it says that they went the way of Cain, right? In Genesis chapter 4, what happened after Cain was, 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 was marked out by God and he was sent away? He wasn't sent away. It said that Cain turned and left the presence of God. That's the way of Cain, where he willingly fled from the, from the presence of God. He associates them with the greed of Balaam in verse 11. He associates them with the rebellious ones of Korah that we see in verse 11 as well. And then in verse 15, he associates them, what, four or five times as being ungodly? Convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This isn't one particular heresy that we're being warned against. It's all heresy. It's all apostates. Apostates of all ages and of all forms. He finally directly charges them in verse 16 of being grumblers, finding fault, lustful, arrogant, charming. Brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, Satan's toolkit has not changed. It's the same as it ever was. The three things that Satan will always try to attack God's people on are God's nature, his character, and his revelation. It has never changed. It's always the same. That is what we contend with. We're contending with the lies of Satan and with men's deceitful hearts. You have to ask yourself, do you find your faith wavering? Which of God's nature, character, or revelation is, is Satan trying to confuse you about? Do you find yourself resistant to some biblical teaching or doctrine? Which of Satan's lies is he attacking you with, he causing you to reject these things? Do you find yourself struggling with sin? Some kind of lust or substance abuse or pride? Just ask yourself. What lies has Satan already deceived you with regarding these three things? We have to stay grounded in the character, nature, and revelation of God. Don't let Satan ask you, has God really built himself in the nature he is? Is he really God? Is he the only God? Is he the creator? Is he a triune God? Has Jesus Christ come in the flesh? Don't allow Satan to tempt you there. Don't allow him to tempt you on the character of God. Is God really good? 
Does God really allow sin to happen in the world? Will God really allow my mother to die of cancer? We know where these things come from. We know what these things are about. We don't have to be confused about them. We don't have to be twisted in the, in the words of, of, of Satan or, or his minions. We can stay grounded in God's revelation. Don't forget the very first deception that Satan ever played was, has God indeed said? He's been playing that card every day with every human being on this earth ever since. The revelation of God that we have in his word is true, and we can put our absolute faith and trust in it because we know the source. We don't need another source. We don't need another external source, and we certainly don't need internal sources. I am not a source of truth. Not to be overly humbling, but you're not a source of truth either. God, Jesus Christ, his word, this is a source of truth. Put your faith and your trust in it. I had the privilege uh, about a month and a half ago of teaching the new members class. And I had an analogy I used at that point, so I hope it doesn't bore people that have already heard it, but it was so applicable I had to use it here as well. That I was on... YouTube, and I saw this video of these dogs that were on a farm, and they were hunting for rats. Right? It reminded me of my dog, because I had a terrier, and I love that dog to death, and he was such a great dog. And he used to hunt animals in the woods. But these dogs, they had like 15 or 16 of them on this farm, and they would pull up hay bales, and they would tip over wood pallets, and they would dig in the earth, and all these sums of rats would just start scattering, and the dogs would quickly dart, chase them, you know, drag them to the ground and they would kill them immediately and, and chase them. And they said at the end, they went there five or six times and at the end they had killed over a thousand rats. And the guy who headed up the dog team said at the end, he said, the reason why this farm had such a problem with rats is because they had to do such a good job of protecting the herds from the outside predators. They had to build their fences high, and they had to dig them deep in the earth to protect it from coyotes and wolves and all the other predators that could come and hurt their flock. But they did such a good job of protecting the flock, they were also protecting the rats. The rats had the freedom to just breed and eat and make baby rats. That's what they do. And they were overrun. They were infested. These rats were eating like a pound of food per rat. And eating this farm out of, out of its food. They were, they were running out of money. It was costing them a ton of money. We don't want to create a situation in the church where we're protecting the church so much from the outside world that we don't even think about the threats from inside. And we can only do that if we make distinctions and stand our ground on what we know to be true. So we have church membership. It's an important process in the church. We make sure that you know who we are, and then we make sure we know who you are. We lay out what we believe. We lay out what we teach. You learn about that. You say, yes, I, I affirm and believe in those things. I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, I believe in grace, salvation through faith by grace of God. Because that's all we're going to teach here. You have to flee from those that aren't going to align with you. 
Bible thinks of it in terms of sheep and goats, right? What do sheep do when they see some danger? They flee from that danger. What happens to goats? They faint. And they're just left prone to whatever danger is coming their way. So now we come to our text. Now we come to the distinction that Jude makes. He says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. So We see first here that we're told to trust in the Word of God, to read our Bibles, to put our faith in it. We understand from the, God, from the Epistle Second 2 Timothy that this is God-breathed, that all Scripture is good for us, that it teaches us, it exhorts us, it corrects us. We have our standard. We have our sole rule of faith. Second Peter 3, he says something similar. Where he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. This isn't new words. The entire Bible is trying to warn us from people that are going to try to turn us away from the word of God, turn us away from truth. We are to put our faith in the Bible. These are the ancient words, right? If we just sang, they resound with God's own heart. This is God's will. This is God's intent. We come to understand it. We come to learn it. We come to believe it. And then we preach it to others. And these are also the apostles, the men who were sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, we see that Jude is making a, a particular point of notating that these people have an ultimate master. That the apostles were sent not of their own accord, but under the accord of their master, Jesus Christ. These people were given a message that has the authority of God. In verse 8, we read that the ungodly, they reject authority. They reject all authority, especially apostolic authority. These people are going to reject the word of God at all points in time told in Acts 17 that the Bereans, they heard the word with great eagerness, but then they sought the scriptures daily, and then they believed. They put their faith in the word of God. And you have to do the same thing. As I told you, you you can apply this right here and now. You need to test what you hear. Especially from an unfamiliar or a new preacher. You don't take my words at faith value. Right? Anybody who comes into fellowship with you, anybody that comes to worship with you, anybody that comes to talk with you about the Lord Jesus Christ, you keep your hands open, right? Through camaraderie and fellowship, yes, you want to call yourself a Christian, amen, hand me your hand, you're my brother in Christ, but then you keep your ears open as well. You verify that this person is a Christian by what they say and how they live. You should be testing me right now. Is everything I'm saying in the word of God? If it's not, correct me. But I will warn you here, and this is a stern warning as I can give you. 
This is not an invitation for you to criticize or debate with Pastor Bob or Pastor Paul. Okay? That's not what this is about. I'm not saying that if you have a problem with the way Bob preaches or the way that he talks about baptism or the way that, that Paul talks about the Sabbath day, that you can go up to them and say, oh, no, you're, you're wrong. Look at this world the Bible talks about this. No, 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 you can't do that. We're not here to stir up anger. We're not here to cause divisions, especially over secondary issues. This is not to show off or demonstrate your own special gifts of discernment. This is not to cause disunity of any kind, in any way, or in any form. This is an invitation to you to do one thing. To use biblical truth to win back brothers and sisters who have strayed from biblical truth regarding those core doctrines that we understand to define Christianity. Things such as the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the holiness and perfection of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, substitutionary atonement, justification by faith, the resurrection, anything concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are essential Christian doctrines. They are non-negotiable. Anybody who preaches anything contrary to that would be a false teacher. Anybody who would deny these things would be a false teacher. So if you hear anybody preaching anything other than that, then you go to them and then you try to correct them. You let them know where they are in error according to the scriptures. Second imperative. See that in verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. The imperative is actually keep yourselves. But we see that we keep ourselves in the love of God through praying in the Holy Spirit and through waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the exhortations. The Holy Spirit is the helper, right? We see that in John 14. John 14, 26. It says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. It's the Holy Spirit that guides us in doing the first imperative and remembering the words of God. We pray in the Holy Spirit to ask God to illuminate our hearts, to give us understanding in light of what he's already revealed to us. And then through that, we keep ourselves in the love of God. Having these things brought to our remembrance, we keep ourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously, or it might say in your translation, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word, waiting anxiously or looking, whatever it is, it's prostekomai, or prostekemenon. I had this so perfectly yesterday. Prostekomenoi, prostekomenoi, that's what it is. Prostekomenoi, right? It means that you're... You're not just waiting for water to boil. You're not just looking for a sunrise to happen. You're waiting anxiously with an expectation to receive something. And that's significant. You're waiting to receive the mercy of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, right? 
What do we have hope in if it's not to await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ? We've been promised that on the day of, of the judgment, we will be spared judgment. We will be given the, the life eternal that's found in Jesus Christ because we put our faith in him. And through that faith, we've been spared the judgment of our sins because Jesus Christ suffered and died for us. He paid that judgment for us. And through that, we have mercy in Jesus Christ. And that's the hope we have. And that's the day we await because the Holy Spirit tells us that in his word. The word tells us that. The Holy Spirit brings it, to, brings it to our hearts. We pray about it. We meditate on it. We remember it. And then it allows us to have hope and joy in the life that's to come when Jesus Christ returns. The ungodly don't keep themselves in the love of God. It says in verse 6 that they are kept in the eternal bonds of darkness. There's a specific distinction there. There's no hope for them. He said they've already been marked out for this condemnation. The final imperative, verse 21. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Essentially, this is all, we can break this down more, but essentially it's talking about discipline, church discipline. If you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you have compassion on your brothers and sisters in Christ, if you see them in error, if you see them in sin, you will do whatever you can to try to snatch them away from that error and to snatch them away from that sin. We're told about that in the Bible. That's how we conduct church discipline. Matthew 18, Jesus Christ said in verse 15, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take two or more with you, so that the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. See something very similar in 1 Corinthians 5. Verse 3, for on my part, this is Paul talking to the Corinthian church, who were doing nothing about a man who was having sex with his father's wife. And Paul tells them, he says, For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. We're talking about excommunication. It's not about casting people out of the church for the sake of showing how powerful we can be or showing that things are going to go our way or the highway. We're doing this for the protection of the church and to save those that are in error. It's what Jesus says. He says, you, you, if your sin, brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. That's the goal, to win back our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why church discipline is important. We're trying to protect ourselves from false teachers. We're trying to protect ourselves from allowing sin to infest the church. And we want the best for you as our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're trying to pull you back from the flames. 
The ungodly aren't that way. In verse 12, it tells us that they feast without fear, caring for themselves. They're merciless. They only care for themselves. Finally, we get to this wonderful doxology. Doxology is significant. It's not a a benediction. A benediction is a blessing upon the people. A doxology lifts up praise to God. Judah is saying, in light of all these things, we lift up praise to God. Now him, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his joy, blameless, of his glory, blameless with great joy. He is able. He is sovereign. You can do none of what I just spoke about without the power of God in you. You can do none of what I just spoke about without the spirit of God residing within you. You won't know the word of God. You won't understand the word of God. You won't know the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, and you won't know how to display that mercy towards others in response. You need God for all of these things. And in verse 25, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The only God our Savior. There is no other Christ. There is no other gospel. There is no other source of truth. This is our only God and our only Savior. Throughout this entire epistle, there is a very high Christology at work here. Jude thinks very highly of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 1, he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. In verse 1, he also says that we are kept for Jesus Christ. In verse 4, he calls him our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 5, I didn't go into it, but in verse 5, it says Lord here. But in your verses, if you have ESV, it should say Jesus saved the people out of Egypt and then destroyed those who did not believe. He is the Savior and the destroyer. People don't like to think of God and Jesus Christ as our judge, but he is the judge. He will determine who is holy and who is unrighteous. We have authority through the word of God that we receive from the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. We wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. The mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ who will display mercy towards us. And then all the glory of God that we see here, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. It all centers on Jesus Christ. He is the Lord. He is our Savior. He is our Master. He is our God. So as I close out, I ask you, looking back on this epistle, who are you? Are you one of the beloved? Or are you one of the ungodly? Did you hear this message today? And do you believe and understand that there is salvation for you if you simply put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Do you regard Jesus Christ as your master? Does that word not sit well with you? Do you not like being under the authority of an eternal God? Do you not like being under the authority of a holy God? Do you consider yourself a sinner at all? Do you understand that you've broken the commandments of God and that you have to answer to him? you do believe in Jesus Christ, 
and you are one of the beloved, then beloved, contend for your faith. Read your Bibles, pray in the Holy Spirit, and have mercy on your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. If you realize that you're not in the love of God, then I implore you, please repent. Turn from your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel message goes out to the entire world, and it goes out starting in this room right here. If you hear these words and realize that you're a sinner, there is salvation for you if you simply put your faith in Christ. Understand that he suffered and died to take the penalty for sinners upon himself. That those that put their faith in him would not perish, but have eternal life. I pray that you'd make the right choice today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord our God, our Master, we thank you, Father, for this message that you've given us. We thank you for this, this word that you've, that you've handed down through the ages, Father. We thank you for the hope that is, that is in Jesus Christ, the hope that we hope that we all have. I pray that the people that have heard this message today would be transformed by it, that they would be moved all the more to put their faith in your word and your son, Jesus Christ. Let us go out from this place and have these things on our mind always, knowing that we are always accountable to you, that you are the only Lord, the only God, the only person to whom we can turn when we are in trouble, and the only person that we can turn to as a hope for our salvation. Please be glorified, Father, through your Son, and through your Word, and through the preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.